Jensen, Jensen, my friend, I'm sure you wanted to hear my voice before starting the race. Uh, just wishing you the best of luck. We follow you here on television. You did amazing yesterday. So, yeah, please have oh, fun, thank you. my friend, and take care of my car. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to pee in your seat. No, no please. <laughs> have fun. You did amazing Cheers, yesterday. Man. Amazing job. And you, buddy. And you, buddy. Have a good one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. Now, you know, we know we're a little late this week, um, but this was such a weekend. And, and I know everyone's a little concerned because we didn't record last week. And last week was it was a crazy week for us. You were on the road. I had uh, some busy training that, was, that kept me completely occupied all week. And then the weekend rolls around, and we've got a jazz band ca- concert. I've got an exam. And then Sunday came, and we had to figure out how to squeeze the entire weekend into one day. And we failed. Something had to give there. Uh, unfortunately, that was the show. But the good news was that, really, in all of that, there wasn't anything that happened that week. No, because everybody saved it for this weekend, which I like to term motorsports extravaganza. Yeah, I mean, this was a really big race week. Now, we know it, it in the United States in particular, it's Memorial Day weekend. And in, in some parts of the area, the weather's nice and folks want to go and have barbecues and get out to the beach and go swimming. And, and, you know, our neighborhood pool was open for the first time this weekend. But really, the question is this. How can you go outside when it's Grand Prix Day? Uh, yeah. Well, my pleather jumpsuit is at the cleaners, and I feel underdressed. Oh, that's understandable, then. She was being facetious, dear. Oh, I see. (laughs) Well, we all packed our pleather jumpsuits away and still sat in front of the TV for seven-something hours of Grand Prix goodness. Seven hours of racing jargon and mindless statistics. Here we come. Ooh, snacks. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're race-themed. Well, vroom, vroom. Well, you know, we did divide it up a little yesterday. We didn't sit and go all the way through the day. No, because you had to take a break to go to a pinball league playoff game. Hey, it was an important week. I know. Hey, the boy won. He did. He trophied. You did not. Nanner, nanner, nanner. Hey, I was in the top eight. Whatever. He has a trophy. (laughs) Um. (laughs) And it's not just a participation trophy, okay? Just no, it's not. <laughs> pointing that out. Um, anyway, there. But it wasn't just seven hours on Sunday of Grand Prix goodness. We had qualifying on Saturday, um, free practice on Thursday. It has been a building sensation. Well, you know, to start the week. There And we didn't talk about it this year. We, we've talked about it in previous years, but we didn't talk about it this year. Right after Australia, right around the time of the Australian Grand Prix, the Motorsport Network, in coordination with the Formula One group and the FIA, released their annual um, fan survey for what fans want. And this, this is that time when they come out and find out that the fans want all this contradictory information and they try to do it all? Well, this week we got the results. Oh, okay. And the results came back. You know, the the big headline from the story with Autosport was that fans reject the introduction of gimmicks. So what came out of it was that a number of changes were suggested in the survey but were comprehensively disagreed with. Things like success ballast, which only 23.4% were okay with. Fast degrading tires, 22.1% were for. Reverse grid, 15.2% 15.2% were in support of this. 
Sprinkler systems, 11.85% picked up support. That's it, or, or, or voted in support of it. Fans also do not support the introduction of a Saturday race, a proposal only 19.3% voted in favor of. A third of fans advocate a standalone race for third or reserve drivers, while only 14.4% want to replace the full-length Grand Prix with two shorter races. However, there are several areas where fans feel F1 can be approved, only several. Support for an annual team budget cap that is agreed and policed remained, but it was down around 10% on the last survey at 44.4%. Just over 54% of fans believe championship points should be awarded for fastest lap, while 69.4% back a return of tire competition between manufacturers. Around 58% of those surveyed were in favor of a return to mid-race refueling. Now, You'll remember that this was discussed in 2016, and everyone said that, yeah, no, that, it's not going to work, and, and it's not going to give you what you want. Now, the other thing, which I'm not so sure about, was 54.5% of the respondents agreed or strongly agreed there should be a return of the V8 engines, which we last saw in 2013. There is also appetite for independent teams to be allowed to purchase and compete with customer cars as 23.2% more people agreed with the proposal than disagreed. Interesting. But the bottom line is the gimmicky stuff. <laughs> all of Bernie. Yeah, all of Bernie. But the gimmicky stuff, the fans don't want that introduced or reintroduced or just brought into play. But what they want is faster cars, louder cars, more passing on the track. Yes. And yet, except for refueling. Except for refueling, which causes passing to happen in the pits. But the faster cars that with the increased arrow and downforce means that the cars can't get close enough to each other to pass on the track. So now we have passing in the pits too. Truth, bottom line, fans will never be happy. Well, yeah, that, that's kind of our job. But speaking of gimmicks... Okay. Pastor Maldonado. Has he's not <laughs> dead yet. <laughs> he's not dead yet. Pastor Maldonado has resurfaced yet again. Oh, my word. What has Crashy McCrasherson done now? Pastor says that this year he turned down an uncompetitive F1 seat. He was offered a ride in Formula One this year, but he turned it down because it was uncompetitive, but still says a return is possible. So you think he was offered Sauber? I, I don't know. Now, so, some of the, the more realistic folks, the ones who, who are, they haven't quite mocked uh, Pastor as much as he could be. They they do like to point out that the whole reason that Pastor was really in Formula One was because of the huge amount of basically the dump trucks full of money that the Venezuelan-backed oil company PDVSA was paying to keep Pastor in the sport. Right. However, the Venezuelan economy is uh, not doing particularly well. And thus the dump trucks have become minor pickup trucks. No, I don't even think it's become minor pickup trucks. I think it's three rolls of quarters. Ooh. <laughs> that will not pay for the damage that Pastor does. The, the reality is, if you truly listen to what 
and, and have heard what's going on down in Venezuela with their economy. They they are about borderline failed state. It is, mm. um, yeah, they can't pay for electricity for the hospitals and drugs. And I mean, it, it's bad. Um, so, but Pastor insists that that is not a roadblock to his return. The fact that, you know, they, they can't buy medicine in the hospitals or pay for electricity or any of the other stuff. He says, it's quite tough. There is ups and downs in the economy, and hopefully soon we can get out of this situation and the country will be strong again. I don't think it's important. A return is still possible. It's not the only sponsor. I'm not here because I don't want to be right now. He says he's not actively pursuing a return to Formula One at the moment, but insists it remains possible. I discovered there is something more interesting than F1 in life. It's not everything, but I'm missing it because I dedicated my entire life to motor racing. I started when I was six. When I wake up and decide, okay, it's time to go back, I will. When asked if he will do any racing this year, he said, I will do something, but I don't know what. Now, my guess... Again, knowing the state of the Venezuelan economy, it's not so much that he misses Formula One. It's that he misses the fact that race weekends, he was guaranteed three meals a day. And electricity. Yes. <laughs> and, and a, a nice hotel room. And maybe a shower. Yeah, hot water, you know. <laughs> All of those things that seem to be in short supply in Venezuela right now. Wow. That's also possible. I just, I'm kind of blown away by Pastor's lack of connection with reality. I mean, I get that when you are, when you travel in the circles that the F1 drivers travel in, that perhaps they could be slightly disconnected from the world around them as it is a bubble unto itself he's not in that circle anymore though he's in a special bubble all by himself <laughs> yeah oh my Poor but pastor. i i just love that every once in a while pastor finds a way to just spring back up he's, like he's not racing he's not doing anything but every once in a while he just seems to pop up he's like whack a pastor yes something like that <laughs> <laughs> a little, yeah, a little whack-a-mole, yeah. Pastor Maldonado. Um, Pirelli has caught some heat over their tires. As I usual. thought they were there was a problem getting heat in the tires. Well, that's part of the issue, too. Um, they have agreed to abandon the, the hard tire for Silverstone. That, uh, yeah, nobody's going to use it. It was kind of pointless to just pay the money to ship it out there, so they're just not going to bother with that. Uh, but they've also promised to look at softer tires for next year because they've realized that maybe they went a little too conservative. Now, this is where I, I really I can't fault Pirelli too much because they were told, make softer tires, make tires that degrade more, make it, you know, make them that they wear out more. So they did. And everyone goes, oh, we hate these high degradation tires because we don't like having four pit stops in a race. So they made harder tires which is where we are this year. And everyone goes, well, now we can't get heat in the tires, and yet we can push really hard when we get them, but now there's only one pit stop in a race, and that's kind of boring, too. It's like <laughs> you know, as a semi-aside and totally related, I have recently been having conversations outside of our little F1 bubble regarding people whose job is in a no-win situation. Yeah. 
And you know something? Pirelli is starting to fall into that category because they are truly, if they give you high deg tires that cause more pit stops, then they also increase the likelihood of tires shredding on the on the track. And that, you know, mm-hmm. makes Vettel go all <laughs> Hulk Vettel on them. And that's all scary. And then if they make the harder tires that don't degrade, then we don't have the good pit stops. We don't have the risk of the degradation. We don't have those other pieces and parts of the puzzle. And then we have, you know, times when you race in Monaco and all the commentators say, you know, these ultra snuggle bear tires could have gone the entire 78 laps. Yeah. After having qualified on them. Well, it's also the, and and we've seen it before, it's once again that realization of you make the tires that work better and that are harder and and it can last longer, and everybody looks up at the end of the race and after going, yeah, this is what we want, and it was really kind of boring. Right, and that's the part where I go circle back to the fan survey and say that everything that the fans say they want is highly contradictory. You know, you want passing on the track. You want risk on the track. Those make for exciting races. Mm -hmm. Well, in order to do that, you have to let the cars get close to each other. And the, but you want them to be faster. You want them to be louder. Then the cars can't get close to each other. And then you You don't want to take the downforce away, the the aero downforce. The aero downforce, you create safety issues, Mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. You don't want the passing to happen in the pits, but the minute you put faster cars on the track that can't get close to each other, that's exactly where the passing's gonna happen is in the pits. And so, you know, we realize that you want people to be able to go wheel to wheel racing out there, and it's all exciting when they go wheel to wheel. And they push and they push and they push. Well, in order to push, 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 you've got to have no degradation in the tires. They need to be able to run flat out. They need to not worry about fuel. They need to be wor- you know, doing all of those things. And when all is said and done, you wind up with more boring races. And the reason is those brief seconds when they truly can go wheel to wheel aren't long enough because of all the other factors that happen in a race and when they go back and they look at the nirvana time of f1 and they say oh if we could only go back to fill in the decade because that was fantastic you would see if you looked at the times the differences between first and second and third and 15th on the grid when they came across the line were larger than they are today they were the the other thing is you know to to loop back into refueling and 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 there's a part of me that kind of digs the refueling. But I think most of the folks who want refueling to come back believe that by removing the fuel restrictions and allowing the teams to, to refuel during the race means that drivers can push as much as they want and damn the fuel because they can always just come in and, and get more. But And while we'll get to Indy later, Indy is also that perfect example of it doesn't work that way. Right. That even with refueling in the race, the teams are still going, you need to save fuel. You need to hit the targets because if you come in too soon, you give up too many track positions and you negate whatever gain that you have, may have made by pushing and drinking and, and, and consuming fuel at a much faster rate. And the truth of the matter is, if you are allowing refueling in the race, it does not mean that you're going to have a full tank of fuel starting out. Mm-hmm. 
and you're going to go flat out for however many laps that tank of fuel lasts. Because the reality is the strategy says you start with a light car, you keep the car light, you come in more often for yeah. fuel stops. Where does the passing occur when that happens? In the pits. Because you want to keep that car as light as possible. The goal with not refueling, beyond the fact that it saves a bunch of money for the teams. I mean, this is an incredibly piece. You talk about, you know, budget caps. You don't have them refueled because the pump alone costs a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, but not only that, but by causing these cars to be at full weight when they start... It means that you get faster and faster and faster all the way through the race. You don't start out with fast laps in the beginning, get bogged down when they have to put on a lot of fuel, and go back to fast. You Every lap should be faster and faster if they're running perfect laps. That actually is a better concept. Yeah. And, you know, we have this in the perfect storm of weekends where we have all of the motorsport, you get to see the contrast between a, a series that refuels and a series that doesn't refuel and how much fuel plays into the winners of IndyCar. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I know we'll circle back to that and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but put a big asterisk because we're going to be talking about fuel. Well, you know, all of these changes, they require the support of the strategy group. Yes. I mean, I could throw in the League of Super Evil music, but I didn't have it ready, so we won't get them. Um, but there was this week a meeting of the strategy group. As there always is in Monaco. Uh, yeah, there is. Uh, and Ross Braun, I guess, chaired the meeting. Um, there was a lot of talk coming out of this about how the atmosphere in the meeting was very different. It was a lot more cheerful. It seemed to be a bit more upbeat than in previous years. Uh, but one of the things that uh, Ross Braun did, for starters, he has pushed that uh, at the very least, the meetings of the minutes should be presented to those who are not present, something that was very rarely done in the past. But the other proposal that he has put forward, which it seems to be, um, I think they have actually agreed on, is that... Ross presented the concept of inviting teams not officially part of the group to attend as observers as a change uh, that would definitely happen rather than one that was voted up for discussion and could not be voted out. So he has pushed this through that this is going to happen now. Oh, wow. Now, this is a move that uh, some insiders see as a step towards letting all teams have a voice in the running of the championship. Now, it doesn't mean that the group will survive as it is, but it means that you know, we could be letting more folks in. So this article w was posted by Autosport of what was going on. And despite the headline, and, and the headline from Autosport was that uh, Ross Braun pushed through Formula One strategy group change. I don't think this article really is about Ross. What do you think it's As about? much as half the article is about Ross. If you scroll down a little bit lower... <laughs> There's a great picture of Monisha Kelton Boy. Oh, is that a picture standing you out in the rain, standing out in the rain under an umbrella with this frowny face on? <laughs> this may be our new alternative album artwork to replace our Bernie, Ooh. because this is one of those pictures. Um, Miserable Monisha, mi sad Monisha. Yes. Um, now. Monisha was, and the last half of the article is dedicated to Monisha commenting on this. 
Um, she says that um, she believes the move to allow observers is a gesture, but she doesn't feel it's gone far enough. She says, we at least know what is being said there. We can theoretically have the opportunity to understand why certain proposals are coming from there. Earlier on, we couldn't understand why they were coming up with certain decisions. Nobody could, actually. Maybe that helps us a bit more in getting a better understanding, as you can see what the different views are. But we don't feel more included, because that would mean we could participate in a discussion. At the end of the day, the group can't work in the way it is. We don't agree with any group having this kind of decision power. And I, I agree with Money for for once. I agree with all of Monisha's comments. Whoa! But I truly Whoa, wait. There's a moment of silence that needs to happen. <laughs> we need to like cut that little piece out. I agree with Monisha by Michael. It it they're, they're valid comments. But I truly think that this was this was a troll of Monisha, and and to that, I just have to say to Autosport, well played. <laughs> <laughs> it it is truly an outstanding photo. <laughs> because really, if there was more to this story than them trying to troll Monisha Keltenborn, they would have gone to talk to Bob Hearn. True, <laughs> true. But he's on the strategy group now. Oh, that's true. He is. Yeah, he can't play the. I want to be with the big kids and play in their sandlot. M maybe, maybe Gene Haas. Maybe Gene. But you know, Gene's still kind of new. He hasn't gotten jaded yet. You know, <laughs> he's not been locked out. He's he's still just putzing around along with his newness. True. Now, as you'll recall, Sauber will be running McLaren, or they will be running Honda engines next year. Yes, they will. We, we don't know if this is a works team dealer yet not. I think that that remains to be seen. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get some, to some interestingness around that later on. Um, but one of the things that uh, Honda has, or, or, excuse me, Sauber has said is that as part of this deal, while nothing has been fully agreed to, they would be open to running young Japanese drivers as part of the deal. Oh. Or as we can better translate that as the more you want to discount the engines, the more willing we're going to be to do anything you want us to do. True. You want us to go and paint the car red and yellow with, with, with polka dots on it? We're for it. We don't care. Okay, we have proven by other teams that they're willing to do a lot with those paint jobs <laughs> for the money. I mean, pink cars, thank you, Force India. <laughs> um, because as we all know, their financial state is rather precarious, which is why the upgrade package that Sauber wanted to roll out in Spain actually was completed in time for Monaco. But they got it out in Monaco. They did get it out. Um, I mean, let's just be happy they actually got it out before, you know, spa. True. Yeah, so maybe we'll see some young Japanese drivers. Hopefully, we'll not see more drivers than Sauber has seats for, but that, <laughs> that remains to be seen. Well, you remember when we first started watching Formula One and they had a Japanese driver, Kamui? Kamui Kobayashi, who was driving for Sauber that right. year. And Kamui, when they did the Japanese Grand Prix, you would have thought that boy won. Well, I mean, it was electric. But to great be, fans in Japan. But to be clear, and, and, and th there's one of the reasons why 
that race was as electric and the, the reaction was the way it was, was Kamui ended up in, I believe it was, he was on the podium. I think he, he was either second or third, but he was on the podium. And that's why he was treated like they won. It was Sauber's best result of the season and Kamui's, I think, best result of his career. It was, but I mean, it was, nothing was more electric than that. But even yeah. before there was a result, it was like Kamui walked on water through that. Yeah. And the race itself was so fan-fabulous mm -hmm. that I think if you put an addition to a Japanese driver in that environment, it would be amazing. And whether or not he made it on the podium or anything like that, I mean... Sauber's still a back marker. We get that. But I just think that would be fabulous. So let's move over to Force India. Since we mentioned Bob Fernley, let, let's talk a little and about pink Force cars. India. And their pink cars. Um, actually, their paint job got them in a bit of trouble. Why? <clears throat> well, if you'll recall, if you think back to Barcelona, and the, the rules change for the numbers. Right. And how they were supposed to be clearly visible on – the, the front of the car, and they had to have the something on the side of the car that also indicated either driver name or um, number, but there had to be something. Mm -hmm. Well, if you think back to Barcelona and all the TV coverage that there were, and we had mentioned it, some of the teams, it didn't appear that they quite stood out like they were supposed to. Well, Force India's solution to this was they placed the number higher up on the nose close to the driver. If you remember Force India's design, they've got kind of that step nose, mm -hmm. ignoring the proboscis. They have the step nose. So they've got the sharp slant, and then there's that little bit of a cliff, and then it flattens out headed to the driver. They put it on the area, on the flat spot headed to the driver, which meant if you're in front of the car, unless you were above the car, you couldn't see the number. Ah. Uh. Well, they got in trouble for that. Ooh. They got, I think it was a 20, they got a 25,000 euro fine that was suspended pending a fix. Okay. So their fix was, and, and they really didn't want to do this, but their fix was to move the number down onto the slope part of the nose. And they didn't want to do it because they have realized that given the visibility that this part of the nose has, that's prime real estate for sponsors. And they're doing pretty good for sponsors this year. Right. <clears throat> so they were really upset that they had to make the move. Well, it turns out that overall, this whole thing, they were pretty ticked off about how this went down in general. Um, their technical director, Andy Green, said he was livid. He was absolutely livid, he said. He said, this set a precedent that should never happen. And their argument is that the car went through scrutiny with the numbers the way they were, multiple times at Barcelona, and nobody said anything. Oh. It wasn't until after the event that the stewards ruled that the numbering was illegal, and that ticks them off. He said, there is no way a car can go through scrutineering several times. He says, we're not just talking about Barcelona. We are talking about the fifth time it had been through scrutineering with exactly the same position of the number, and there had been not one bit of feedback from the FIA up until that point. 
Also, when we did revise the size of the numbering for that event, it was shown to the FIA prior to that event what we were going to do. So to then go through all those procedures and at the end of it say you are not right and slap us on a writ for it, wrist for it, it just, and he shook his head at this. He says, how do we know we are legal now? I've got no idea. We've gone through scrutineering, but to me now, scrutineering means nothing. He says the precedent that it has set is huge, absolutely huge. Well, I think he's got a good point. I think it's I a mean, valid, very valid point. If it passed, it passed. Yeah. I mean, the best that the it, that they could do is go, yeah, it meets the letter of the law, but once we saw it on television, it you can't see it, and we need to change the letter of the law. Mm-hmm. But you don't slap them with a fine. You ask nicely. You 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 go. Yes, I get that. That meets the letter because it probably did. Mm-hmm. It that's why it probably fat passed scrutineering and probably didn't realize that you couldn't see it until they got it on television and looked at it and went, "Oh, that's not going to work." Yeah. And if they had worked with Force India, I think that that might have been a little bit less angry making as opposed to coming back down and saying, "Yeah, you know why we said that passed, it didn't really pass." I just looked at the the picture of them at Monaco mm-hmm. and where they moved the the number two. And yeah, I get it. Um, but they've surrounded that with some a lot of sponsors. So I'm pretty sure they're not missing out on a whole lot for that one little number. Yeah. Um, and whoever is paying for the step piece, which is hype, is paying for that step piece, is better be paying a pretty penny because that's what <laughs> you really can see. <laughs> um, uh, hype is doing quite a bit of mar- marketing with them. Yeah. And they, they have a beautiful step on their nose. Yeah. All of that step. So anyway. So while we're talking about technical bits, because this is kind of a technical rule and technical piece. Um, the uh, Actually, let me step back a little. There was a couple of weeks ago in British Formula 4, there was a pretty significant crash in the pits that led to British driver Billy Munger losing his legs. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, really, really massive crash. Well, as part of that investigation, there hasn't been a full word as to what happened. But as part of this investigation, the FIA has actually directed several teams to modify the rear jack points on their cars. Interesting. Um, They... We don't know for sure, but there's, there's some suspicion that, based on this letter, that the design of the jacking point on the car Billy Monger hit may have contributed to the severity of the, of the accident. So FIA Safety Director Laurent Mechie sent a note to the, team that's, to the teams that said, following several front-to-rear incidents over the past months in various single-seater categories— the FIA would like all F1 teams to ensure that their rear jacking point designs cannot act aggressively during such an incident. Considering the strength, shape, and position of the jacking points, they may become one of the initial points of contacts in a crash with another car and alter the performance of the crash structure of the other car. The use of aggressive designs will not be permitted from the Monaco Grand Prix onward. All jacking points used from that date must first be approved by the FIA technical department. 
So in clarifying what was acceptable as a non-aggressive design, he said it would have to be geometrically shaped so that the first point of contact between the nose and the rear impact structure protrude no more than 45 millimeters from the surface of the rear impact structure. Um, now, not all of the teams had to make changes. Some of them, it was already considered to be safe. Um, Gunther Steiner did say that they did have to change theirs over at Haas. Um, nobody really thought it was a big deal. Um, it was nothing that was too demanding, so they weren't too concerned. Um, he said there was a reason why, and if we learn something, eh, we'll change it. So, Wow. The other one of the other changes was that some new curbs were put in over at the swimming pool chicane mm -hmm. um, to deter drivers from cutting the chicane and, and you know force them to stay within track boundary. There's not a whole lot of options. <laughs> <coughs> you have wall, and you have big curb. Yeah. Basically, this is big curb put near wall. Drivers don't really like it. Um, but it sounds like it still went into place. You know, the, the concern with, with big curb is that it upsets the car, possibly puts it into the air, and causes bigger problems. But, yeah, they put it out there. That's all we really heard is that the drivers didn't really like it. But there was a new curb put in there. Okay. Hey, the drivers were complaining about it. So we should talk about Jensen. Yes, I think we should start talking about Jensen. Okay. And his triumphant return to Formula One. <laughs> you know, as harsh as his comments were, and, and we don't have them, if you happen to have caught the, the Channel 4 broadcast, and I think actually it was a column he wrote in one of the English papers that they were talking about. But um, Mark Webber tends to, to show up every so often on Channel 4 as part of their coverage. He does a great job. Mm -hmm. Really liked it. Him and David Cothard is a great combination. Um, but he had written um, an op-ed piece somewhere that they they called up as part of their coverage and, and way to put Mark on the spot, where Mark turned around and said that, you know, Jensen's return, it's a non-issue. It's a waste of time. It's kind it's a of a non-story. Yeah, it's a non-story. It's kind of pointless. And yeah, I love having Jensen back, but it's a waste of everybody's time. Exactly. And yeah, I, I well, and the Channel Four people took umbrage with this because it was kind of exciting news. We were going to get Jensen. Jensen's really cool. How could you diss a, a British driver? All of those types of things. And Mark's like, well, wait a minute. Let's look at the reality of this thing. Honda's not doing very well. Honda, McLaren, Honda are—they're not doing very well. There's no chance that Jensen's actually going to win this race, which is basically the only thing that would make this exciting. And that's well, what Mark had said was that it's not exciting news that Jensen's coming back. Yeah, and and just for for the as much as everybody was pinning a lot of hopes on Jensen and the McLarens getting possibly getting points because of the nature of the track, I. Yeah, no, I, it's, that that's that's not where McLaren should be, right? And we shouldn't be excited that a world champion comes back and woo, he might score points in a crappy car. Well, you know, it, when they first said that he was going to come back, they were talking about well, what if Jensen won? And they were talking about how this was Honda's best chance because it's such a low speed track and yada yada, wolf wolf. And 
the reality was, and that's what Mark was calling out, was he's not going to win. He's not going to be in a position to win. Mm-hmm. Then they slapped him with a 15-grid penalty. Yeah. Thank you for some change in the engine or whatever. So no matter what he did, he couldn't start from the front of the grid. He, I mean, he could have tried to put it as best he could, but even as Susie Wolf said, well, he could have started 15th if he made pole, but he wasn't going to make pole. And the best he could do was start at 15th. Well, he wound up starting from the pits. Which I think w- was a smart call. It was the best strategy he could have had. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, I mean, there wasn't... The, Mark was right. And when Mark explained it, it became even more of the, well, yeah, it's been a whole lot of, you know, sound and fury over a pretty much nothing. Um, and probably just net-netted to annoy the heck out of Jensen. Well, the thing is, as much as, yes, it's Monaco. And I think all the drivers love Monaco. One way or the other, they, they love Monaco. I think Jensen's been... When he walked away, and as, as much as everyone was really hopeful that this would just be a sabbatical, a year off, he'd go away, and that would, you know, he'd come back for 2018, one way or the other. If you, you look at what he has done in the last year, and all this talk of, you know, he'd be making an appearance at some, some races and stuff like that, the way he has so thoroughly removed himself from autosport, I mean, he's not even looking at other than, I think, two test drives that he did in some other series, he has done no racing whatsoever. Mm-hmm. He's not been in autosport whatsoever. I think, yeah, he's decided that he, he was done, and, and he didn't want to come back and wasn't planning on coming back. Um, well, and, and he I think, said that at Abu Dhabi last year. At the end of it, it was he had started that weekend thinking it, he would still come back, he would still come back, and when mm-hmm. he started that last race, he just knew. He's like, I'm done. And I think I think this was more of a hardship on him to have to come back. He would rather be doing triathlons. He would rather be in L.A. He would rather be doing other things. I mean, I'm surprised at the very least we haven't seen him do more promotional stuff. Mm-hmm. That, that really kind of surprised me. But, yeah, as we mentioned, he didn't test the car. No. He didn't get in the car at all until free practice. He was relying on simulator work. We've got some some information from him, some some comments from him about how the simulator went. Okay. So um, what Jensen had to say was, when I jumped in initially, I didn't like the feel of the car, and this was before the updates. So we made some setup changes, and it was, pretty, it was much better and suited my style a lot more. And with the updates, it is pretty awesome to drive. I also fell into the port twice today in the simulator. And hopefully that will not happen. <laughs> After turn one, you go up the hill. I fell off on the right-hand side and rolled. I've never rolled in this simulator before, but I rolled. Luckily enough, the impact isn't as big as in reality, but you still get a jolt and a bit of G-force. Interesting. <laughs> he rolled a simulator. Interesting. <laughs> now, in his interview with, I think it was Hothard, um, on Saturday, yeah. he mentioned that he had done nothing but simulator work. And he mm-hmm. says, and you know, the one thing that you don't really get out of the simulator is the fact that these cars are wider and the streets of Monaco didn't get wider in comparison. Yeah. Um, so the cars are wider, but in typical Jensen style, he goes, but I still sit in the middle, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> so, you know, that part hasn't changed. So he figured he'd be okay. But you could just see from his demeanor on Saturday how much, you know, that drive to win, mm-hmm. that absolute, even if you know you can't win, there's a drive, even in some of those back marker guys, to finish, to achieve, to accomplish. That was not with Jensen. Absolutely not. He was having, I mean, he was having fun. He was enjoying himself. He was relaxed. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't, he didn't have that edge that Jensen of even last year had. He yeah. had the, I, I'm, I'm done. Well, you know, Jensen, since, since I know you're listening to us. I know he does. I, I, I know I know you're listening. Um, Jensen, I, I, we've said this before and we're going to say this again. And, and I think as much as we thought it was unlikely before because we thought you were going to just run to Japan, since you're spending time in America already and you're spending time in L.A., Pick up the phone and call NBC Sports. You need to be one of their commentators. Oh, yes. You know, they work out of Charlotte most of the year, except for when they go to Austin and when they go to Monaco. I'm not even sure they're going to go to Montreal. If they do, hey, great. But you can do some great training for triathlons in North Carolina. Yeah. You know, the hills are great training ground. You can still keep up on all your triathlon stuff, <laughs> and you can keep your fans happy because they get to see you. They get to see the wit and hear the wit and all of the knowledge and expertise that you bring. I think now more than ever, NBC Sports needs you, and you need them. <laughs> I think NBC Sports needs Jensen more than Jensen needs them. But the only caveat to that is, as much as I David think... David Hobbs has to go away. Well, David Hobbs has to go away. Oh, my word, he has to go away. You, and, and actually thinking about it, you know, a Jensen Button-Steve Magic combination could, be, could be awesome. Could be fun. But the problem is, the Jensen Button-David Cothard love fest that is that yeah. combination is magic. But... You know, just as good is Mark Web, Mark Weber and David Cothard. Yes. I mean, they are a, a very good combination as well. So They yeah. are, and I appreciate them, and I enjoy them. And I've always said that Jensen really needs to be behind a microphone. He would be a fantastic commentator on Formula yeah. One. Um, but, yeah, I Jensen, please, I'm begging you. And, and I think it would be... As cool as it would be to see him trackside, I don't think he has any desire to to replace Will Buxton and be at every race. And mm-hmm. and I get that. And that's why I think truly be one of their in-studio commentators in North Carolina. I think that'd be awesome. I mean, I'd love to have a driver from this century as part <laughs> of their Ouch. commentating team. Ouch. All right, so moving on to, to other changes for Monaco. Uh, you know, Monaco downforce is a big deal. And and we've mentioned before, one of the things that is done for Monaco is done nowhere else is the cars cha- or the teams change out the steering rack for the car so that they can make it around the Lowe's hairpin. Right. 
or whatever it's called this week. I think this week it's still Lowe's. It's still Lowe's. It depends yeah. on who owns the hotel. but So that they can make it around that hairpin because it is so tight. It's the only way they can make the turns by changing out the, the It's the, the tightest hairpin in all of Formula One. The other thing about Monaco, well, I don't think we've talked about this before. Monaco features the only indoor curve in pretty much any race series. Interesting. The curve under the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Indoors. Um, but the other thing that teams are, are seeking is they're looking for downforce. Right. Any way they can get downforce. So this week we saw T-wings prop, sp- sprout up on teams that had not run them before. It was like umbrellas everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of. <laughs> um, Force India mm-hmm. brought along a T-wing. And actually, one of the, the, thing, the two things that were notable about Force India's one, more than anything else, was that their design, and several other teams did this as well, their T-Wing had rounded edges, mm. like the McLaren. Which makes you think that maybe McLaren got something right if other teams are starting to copy them. Because normally, the way it's been the last couple of years, McLaren goes off on their own, and everybody goes, that's why it's not working. It's because McLaren did something completely different. Yeah. But this folks seem to be interested in. Interesting. Now, Force India, they brought out the T-Wing. They went with the triple T-Wing. Ooh, the triple threat. My thought is that they they weren't just looking to improve the television reception. They wanted to make sure that they got the 4K HD broadcast in the cockpit. That's important. <laughs> That's very important. Red Bull, on the other hand, uh, they were just looking for the HD reception, so they only went with the two the the two fin wing okay. as opposed to the three. Now, you you talk about things about the cars that help cars go around the track in Monaco better. I was listening to some pre-race coverage somewhere mm-hmm. somewhere in Britain. I'm sure of it. That's about the closest I can get. And they mentioned that Ferrari had a very distinct edge in Monaco this year. They have a shorter wheelbase. Yeah, I believe I that was five live. And I didn't know that wheelbases were not created equal. We've seen this before. We saw this, I want to say it was 23. 13 Lotus ran depending on the race a different wheelbase and I think towards the end of the year there was a lot of talk because they went with a longer wheelbase car than they did at the beginning of the year interesting but yes and and I believe it was five live that pointed that out that Ferrari's car has a shorter wheelbase than any of the others which means they they didn't need as tight of a steering rack <laughs> right. And I just found that to be a little interesting because the comparison got made of it's the difference between handling a mini through curves and handling your normal estate car, yeah. your normal station wagon. Well, the, the other comment that was made to, to describe what it was like driving in Monaco, especially a Formula One car in Monaco, is that picture trying to ride a bicycle through your living room. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> that would not be pretty. I've seen our living room. <laughs> and Well, you know, it's that, that idea of you get it wrong, you're going to break something very expensive. Yes. <laughs> well, that's true. Most likely you. Um, in Monaco, particularly, it would be you or the car. Yeah. Um, anyway, so are we ready to start talking about Monaco, or do you have anything else? Well, Adrian Newey has resurfaced. Yes. Did he come off the America's Cup circuit? Um, well, he's not really happy. Um, he has returned to the team to assist with stuff. Um, 
as you mentioned, America's Cup, he was tied into. He also was involved in the Aston Martin hypercar project. Yes. The, the RBS was what they were calling it, I think. Okay. Um, but as he has said, I he stepped right back. But it became obvious that the car under a more delegated or committee way of operating wasn't performing. He says, as a kind of duty to the team to try and bring things forward, I've been quite busy since the second test getting back involved to see what I can do to help. It's not what I wanted to be doing long term, but I'm happy to be doing it for a period of time. I think what's clear is that my stepping back in a system of regulatory stability, then the system was working, but that the kind of committee approach hasn't worked when we've had a big regulation change. So, so that's what we need to consider for the future. Wow. So, yeah, he's not particularly happy. He doesn't think that the way the team has been run is, from a design standpoint, has been particularly effective. Mm. I get that he wants to step away, and I don't blame him for that. But Red Bull, I think, needs to come up with a way to replace him. <laughs> they need somebody waiting in the wings. They need the newy protege. And it's been clear that they don't have that now. And it doesn't sound like that Adrian coming back is really going to help establish that. No. They, he needs he needs to start working on a protege. I mean, that's that's gotta come from Nui too. Mm-hmm. Um I think that there's some ego there that's happening in the Nui side. You see that in his interviews, that he's the one, that he's the white knight. He can solve the problem. He knows better than everybody else, but he needs to raise up some protégés. Yeah. Some it, it, It's not simply a matter of guys. stepping out and letting somebody else, somebody else take over. Right. He, he's got to find a way to build them and, and do and that them true up. brain dump. Right. Yeah, we need a a, a, a Nui 2.0. Yeah. So stepping back a little to <clears throat> Spain, because we're going to talk a little Mercedes now. As you'll remember, in Spain, Valtteri Bottas had a failure that took him out of the race. And he didn't have a spectacular race. It was, it was okay. I think he was doing what he needed to do. Right. Um, but had an engine failure. The team has done a root cause analysis, and they have determined that the issue was a turbo. Now— Going into the race, what should have happened was both him and Lewis were supposed to be running new engines. They had them put in, but Valtteri had they had to revert back to the old engine in Valtteri's car because it was a water leak. Right. Where they have identified the cause of the problem was a turbo. Um, they don't think that this was an issue where it was the age of the engine that caused it. They think that there was a defect that they'd never seen before that has popped up. Interesting. Yeah, so this was something new that occurred that took Valtteri out of the race. Well, when making errors, always make new ones. Yeah, I guess. Um, so, Lewis. Are we going to talk Mopey Lewis? We can. So in the run-up to this week, Lewis has been talking about the various ways that he's been working to trim the fat and make things leaner and improve the performance and do so much better. You know, like getting rid of his trainer. I know. I still don't understand I, that. Well, he's revealed some of the other things that he's done. 
he has decided in an effort to save weight in the car because you know weight is important in Formula One, and we want the car they want the cars to be as light as possible. And Mercedes having an issue with weight in the car, it, it is a little tubby. Mm-hmm. They can't quite place bring in the ballast that they want to balance the car the way they want. So they're looking for ways to save weight. Lewis has elected as part of this to remove the drinks bottle from the car. Doesn't he need to have like water throughout the the race? That would be my thought is, you know, okay, that may be fine at the races where it's a little bit cooler, but you know, oh, I don't know, Singapore, some of these other races that, you know, Austin's one that's probably going to get a little warm. You're probably going to want something to stay hydrated. One would think. In these more physical cars. One would think. And this decision of his saves a kilogram. That's huge. I mean, yes, it's a decent amount of weight, but still, I don't know. I mean, he could also lose a kilo. Yeah. And then he could have his drink. Lewis has also admitted that uh, this year's car is a, a, a bit more challenging to drive. It takes a bit more to get it dialed in and set up properly and the balance set the way it is. So when asked about this, because this is Lewis and this is the world that Lewis lives in, he said, I quite like that the car is difficult to drive. It's like you watch people jump on the bull and try to tame the bull try to tame a horse. It's the same kind of feeling you get in this car when it's not easy, when it's a challenge. There are cars I've had in the past which have been beautiful to drive and very easy, a lot easier to set up. I like that this is a challenge. It really puts myself and my engineers on the edge. So said Lightning McQueen. (laughs) I mean, that's... Kind of the attitude here. Well, you know, I want to win, but I don't want it to be too easy because I want to make sure that we put on a good show and make it exciting for the fans, you lion sack of poo. It's not that. It's the the car is hard to set up. It's tricky. But I'm so smart I can accomplish it. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Lewis Lightning McQueen Hamilton. <laughs> That's what I think we're going to need to call him if he keeps this crap up. Lightning McQueen. Well, with the release of Cars 3 coming soon. I know. How convenient is that? Of of which he's a part of. He's one of the cars. Now, maybe that's where he got these dumb ideas from. Mm -hmm. Possibly. Possibly. So what else has uh, Lewis decided to share before he got to be Mopey Lewis? Well, we had Mopey Lewis this weekend. He did have Mopey Lewis. You kind of knew we were going to have Mopey Lewis come the end of qualifying. You knew that was coming. And some of it, I think, is his own damn fault. Okay, what? You would think after, what was it, 2015, Lewis would have learned his lesson about Monaco, (laughs) that you have to get in that fast lap as quick as you can and as early in that session as you can. You would think. You would think that. Apparently, that's not a lesson he has learned yet. Okay, but in his defense, I'm going to say this. I think that he didn't get that fast lap in in Q2 like he should have, not from a lack of trying, but because he kept overcooking some turns. 
And that may be he some of it as well. But fastest in sector one and then would overcook a turn in sector two. That's not holding back. I, I, I take umbrage with this idea that he left it to the end. He overcooked two tw- times before that and then got called out because he kept overcooking it. This goes back to that commentary that we heard on Channel 4 about driving through Monaco. And the reason why they believed that yep. Valtteri had done better in Monaco than Lewis did. Lewis is a very competent driver, almost to the point of overconfidence. But yep. Monaco is one of those tracks, one of those areas where if you overdrive it, if you push it too hard, she bites back. And she bites back hard. Well, it's it's because the drivers learn it, that those barriers aren't movable. Yeah. So... Lewis had two errors in Q2 that caused his lap to be that last possible lap. And that's why he didn't make it out of Q2 is because just wasn't going to happen. However, Valtteri is a more controlled driver. I will say it that way. I will say he's less experienced than he is. But it's not because he's bad or that he's a poor driver. He's, he's a more conservative He's driver. much more conservative. And because he's much more conservative, he tends to undercook those laps. And the statement got made that in Monaco, pretty much exclusively Monaco, it is better to underdrive because you'll make it through than to overdrive. And Lewis's whole history of driving has always been about pushing that edge to the very edge. And that's why Monaco bites back on him. And while he's good enough to keep it out of the wall, as proven by the fact that during the race, he kept it out of the wall. And boy, howdy, did he have a bobble there that I thought he was headed straight for that wall. Uh, So did he. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think his shorts were clean after that. He might have let a little go. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think that, He's good enough to keep it out of the wall, but he's not good enough to not overcook those turns. And he hit some chicanes and just went straight through them. So, podium. Because Lewis was, yeah. Hey, he was higher than he thought he was going to be. They told him going into that race that seventh was the highest he could hope for, and he ended sixth. But how how much of that was due to attrition? Well, three places of it was all attrition. And... Overall, as much as I like Monaco, Monaco is just the visuals of Monaco, much like Singapore. Visually, it is a cool race, and I like watching it. But I think this year, more than any other other in quite a while, the, the passing issue was highlighted. Mm-hmm. There really was none other than Sergio Perez barging through. If it mm-hmm. wasn't through pit lane strategy, it really didn't happen. Yeah. And the wider cars don't help. The tight confines, and maybe it was just me, but this year it really looked like Monaco was narrower than it normally <laughs> is. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think it got any narrower. However, um, the narrowest part of the track mm-hmm. is 11 meters wide. Yeah. I think the cars are 7 meters. Something like that. I mean, it's there is no room for error in there. Um, I, I think they really got to look at something with, with the design of the cars, not from a DRS kind of perspective and will artificially 
you know, flick a switch or something like that. I think there needs to be a rethink of the rule set when it comes to the aerodynamic downforce and the mechanical downforce, which is two different things, Mm -hmm. and potentially even the width of the cars so that these narrower tracks aren't this battle uh, where you've got to just accept the fact that, okay, I qualified in 10th, and I'm probably not getting anywhere. Right. They, they, they've got to do something. I, I I agree. I agree. But they also have to do something to allow the cars to get closer to each other. And that's the arrow down force has got yeah. to change. So our podium for this weekend was Sebastian Vettel, Kimi Raikkonen, and I got to say a fairly surprising Daniel Ricciardo. Because even Red Bull walked into this saying, yeah, we don't think that there's a chance. Yeah. And... The Red Bulls were really strong, and compared to last year. Now, admittedly, last year, Daniel Ricciardo was kind of robbed by his team. Right. Daniel was a lot happier on the podium with his third. I know. Second <laughs> last year, and he was very unhappy. Third, very, very happy. Um, however, I'm beginning to believe a trend here. Okay. I think second place in Monaco is where an angry driver comes out. Yeah, it it seems to be that way. (laughs) Because last year we had uncelebratory uh, Daniel, who didn't talk for like three days, Mm -hmm. which is highly weird for him. The happiest man on the Formula One grid was angry. You got to wonder how many times this week Daniel Ricciardo looked at the team and said, when I pull into the pits this weekend, you guys better have those tires ready. I know. There are no excuses. Well, I want to know if we did not hear the radio call when they said box, 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 and Daniel go, are the tires ready? <laughs> Quite possibly they were standing there with those tires two laps in advance to make sure that they were there. <laughs> the little tire blankets. Um, but so, yes, he was robbed from his first by his team last year. He was angry, Daniel. This year, Kimmy fully feels that he was robbed of first by his team by leaving Sebastian out to gain track position so that when Sebastian finally did come in, um, that he was able to come out in front of Kimmy out of the pits. Well, what Kimmy had to say was, I don't know. Obviously, it didn't work out very well for me. Other than that, not much I can say about it. It's still second place, but it doesn't count a lot in my books, at least. It doesn't feel awfully good. That is how it goes sometimes. One of those days, we should have had a bit more. Well, I think Kimmy is really not looking <clears throat> on the bright side here. There are certain things that Kimmy needs to remember. First, he had pole in Monaco. He this did. was his first pole in 128 races. Yes. France, 2008, was his last pole. Now, his last win or time on the podium was like three years ago. With Lotus. With Lotus. So it was his last win. He's been on the podium. Yeah. But, I mean, seriously. That and, again, as a team, he gave Ferrari their first 1-2 in years. 13-something? First Monaco win in 13 years. Yeah. But that was Vettel. But it was the first Monaco with a 1-2 because the last one that they won was Schumacher and Barrichello. Yeah. Was it Barrichello or was it Massa? 
No, it was Baricella. Okay. It was Rubens Baricella. And it was a 1-2 in like 2002, 2003. You've got the book. I have the you book. Can, you can look it up. So uh, while you're looking that up and, and, and get those stats, let, let's turn our attention over to Sebastian Vettel and, and all the controversy that has been flying around Sebastian's win. Um, with the the question being of whether or not Ferrari engineered this strategy-wise and was favoring Sebastian to hand him the win. Because clearly, getting the win would more well, well place his lead in the championship significantly more secure than it had been. I mean, it, it's a 25-point lead at that point. So what... And, and you would even posted that opinion of possibly uh, Ferrari might issue some team orders to make Kimi give up the spot. And I told you, no, I didn't think so. There was no point in it. 2001. 2001 was the uh, Ferrari 1-2 in McLaren? Or at at Monaco, rather? Yep. And then just to kind of give people an idea of the difference, Mm -hmm. lap times this past year, like some of the top lap times were – 1.16, 1.17 1.16, 1.17 was average lap time, especially towards the end. Um, the, oh, I don't have the lap time. I'm sorry. Time in the race, the difference between Schumacher and Barrichello was less than half a second, but just at about a half a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole race took an hour and 47 minutes. They couldn't have had that many safety cars. Mm-mm. <laughs> Cothard had pole that that. Um, yeah, I believe that was the year they were making fun of David Cothard <clears throat> for stalling out the car. Yeah, he had pole and finished fifth. But back back to Seb in this controversy. Seb has denied that there were team orders at play and that this was a strategy. Um, as Seb has pointed out, and several others have pointed out, is that you know it is very normal for the lead car to get the first pick, mm-hmm. and this was the scheduled time for him to come in. What Seb says, and uh, Total Wolf said pretty much the same thing, is that they didn't expect Seb's performance once Kimmy came in to be the way it was. But there were some other issues at play. So when Kimmy, Kimmy had lost time going into his pit stop because he got uh, stuck behind the Button-Verline battle and right. lost time behind that, when they pitted him, he came out once again back behind Button-Verline. And this time he did not on the ultra softs but on the super softs and couldn't get the same kind of performance that he was getting off the ultras. Where I think the question becomes is that, yeah, Seb pitted later, but he got to put in some really good fast laps on those ultrasofts and open up the gap that he did. Well, he got nice clean air and got to enjoy some clean air. And so, yeah, he pitted later, but he used that to his advantage. But I find it hard to believe that Ferrari couldn't see the projections happening that would indicate especially as it started getting closer, that they could keep Seb out longer and he was opening enough of a gap up that he'd be able to pit and come out still in front of Kimmy. 
their strategist had to know that that was coming. Oh, yeah. And had to have been able to see it. And they left him out there and allowed him to open up that gap. And that's where I question the argument of, yeah, they may not have walked into it with this thought of we're going to keep him out long enough so that he can open that gap, but they had to have seen it happening. And the fact that when they saw it happening, they didn't try and protect Kimmy's lead. They said, well, let's leave him out there and give him the chance to do that. That's where I question the team orders didn't come into play, and there wasn't a conscious decision by the team to leave him out there as long as they did. I don't think that they were under any obligation to protect Kimmy's lead. I think that's where you and I are, are differing. I don't see it as being a team order situation where they decided that Vettel was going to win. If there was a 1-2, Vettel was going to be in the one spot. I don't think that we're there. I think it was much more of the fact that Kimmy got tied up with the button Verline issue. And they were watching Vettel put in these lap over laps. And the strategist looks at everybody and goes, hey, if we leave Vettel out for two more laps, he can open up a lead and he'll have first. They could not predict that Kimmy wasn't going to have other troubles because he was having trouble getting past Button Verline and lapping some people. But even he was if- in traffic. And if they couldn't predict that, they might as well keep that one. They had it. They could keep it. But what would have happened is what essentially what did – if they pulled in Vettel a little bit earlier, Kimmy would have still held it, – it wouldn't have mattered one way or the other. Kimmy still would have had the lead with Vettel in second behind him to play to be his backup, mm-hmm. whether that was to hold off Ricardo or something else along those lines – Vettel was always there to take that up. I don't think that, I I honestly don't think, I think that it was much more of a, they were watching Vettel get clean air and just push, 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 push. And with that, they're like, hey, let's leave him. But I think that call was made with the decision of Vettel is the number one driver and we're going to take care of the number one driver. Well, I know that Vettel's their number one driver. Hamilton has written many articles about how he's— He said it this past week. He is the number one driver. Ferrari. Which I think at some point, it's because Lewis is trying to now say, I'm tired of this. Both drivers are equal. I want to be the number one. Mm. That's why I think Lewis is doing it. Um, So it wasn't a great weekend for Sauber, despite their new upgrades. Right. Um, There was— and, and this wasn't Pascal's fault, and Pascal was really kind of ticked about it. The fairly spectacular incident between Pascal Verline and Jensen Button at the entrance to the tunnel over at Portier. Yes. Um, now, they had, wait a minute, before you go into Portier, they had tussled in the pit lane. They did, and, and there Jensen was 100% right. That was an unsafe release. And, and Pascal got slapped with a... F- Five-second grid penalty. Right. Which I don't know how Not that— Not a grid penalty. Uh, addition, time penalty. Time penalty. Now, I think he did pit one time, so I think he did have to go and serve that penalty. I think there was another pit for them. I know Jensen came in for a second time. Um, but the stewards uh, decided that Jensen's move was overly optimistic, mm-hmm. um, and he should not have made that move, and slapped him with a five-pick— a, a five position or three position I thought it was five three. 
a three-position grid penalty to be served at his next race. But he's never going to race again, so he yeah, will never it, serve it is a penalty. highly likely, unlikely that he will serve that. He also got points on his racing license. Two. Yeah. Two. Um, there were a couple of people that got points this weekend. Perez also got points this weekend. He's now sitting with five. Yeah. But back to Pascal. Let's start with the fact that Pascal walked away from his crash. It was very reminiscent of his incident at Race of Champions. Which, in a way, has, and we haven't heard anything about it as much as they've said he was okay. And they said pretty much the same thing when he came away from Race of Champions was that he was okay. And then we found out that wasn't the truth. I'm kind of wondering, given the nature of this incident, whether or not he may have aggravated the, the previous injury. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something, Pascal's status is something we need to keep an eye on. Yes. He was... Um because of the way the two tires hit each other, I mean, truthfully, before he went flying into the wall, there wasn't a whole lot of damage. Jensen's front left tire was caught in front of Pascal's rear right. Yeah. And it, it, the combination made Pascal's tire roll over Jensen's tire. Mm-hmm. And that lifted him up. And then on the turn, it just made him slide on his left side straight into that wall. Well, it, it does beg the question at any other track if there had been more room would that have been which direction that car would have gone right would it have gone completely over which with the safety zells and the roll hoop would have been a different experience for him or would it have recovered and come back down on all four wheels that's if there was more room and it was really hard to tell what that was but monaco being monaco there was nowhere for that car to go no, there was a wall. Um, so he's tipped up literally on his left two tires up against the wall. Radio comes in from his team. Hey, Pascal, you okay? Pascal goes, yeah, I'm fine. Would be better if I could get out. Yeah. Be patient. They're on their way. They're going to help you out. But they couldn't get him out until they could move a sud car. So Wh- that was interesting. Which... You know, by the way, and, and it happened during that conversation and a couple others, and we haven't watched a lot of NBC sports coverage this year, but they had gotten better for a stretch about not talking over the radio calls. And this week, they seemed to be awful about it. I don't know. You kept yelling at the TV to shut up. Yeah. It was Lee Diffie in particular. He, he was awful about stomping all over those, those calls. Yes. Um, so anyway, they get him out. He walks away. Long walk. Jensen actually was able to recover long enough to basically get back to the pits because he destroyed. No, his he front. didn't get to the pits. He didn't get to all, the pits. All he oh, did he was pulled off on a at, at the chicane just just past the tunnel. He managed to get that far. Right, because he destroyed his front wing. Yeah. Well, the whole front end and the suspension was was shot from that. Yeah. So we have a safety car period. They, they, they start to wrap things up. They give lap cars permission to, to regain Un- the pack and, and to unlap themselves. themselves. Lance Stroll complains about brakes and tires. You know, welcome to Formula One, Lance. This is how it is. And <laughs> as the, the cars are trying to unlap themselves, Marcus Erickson coming around or, or attempting to pass the safety car over at Sandavote puts himself into the wall. 
yeah. under safety car conditions. Under safety car conditions, he crashes. Well, what he said was going on was um, it was the same thing that Lance Stroll was complaining about was it, it is so hard to get heat into those tires. They were under the safety car, so he lost the heat in the tires. But before they had gotten into the safety car period, he was having problems with the brakes overheating. So the brakes had overheated before they got into the safety car period. They were still running hot. They lost the temperature in the tires, and now he's told, go around the safety car so you can you know, unlap yourself. So he's got overheated brakes and no heat in the tires. That meant He was nothing still driving worked. on ice. Yeah, nothing worked, and he became a passenger as he went around. Yeah. They, they talk a lot about that that combination has a sensation of driving on ice, that you yeah. just have no control. So, yeah, that's all we got for, for, for Monaco right now. I'm sure there'll be more coming out of the coming weeks. But as we all know, this was a big racing weekend. So we can't ignore the other major race that we watched on Sunday. It's a good thing you highlighted that we watched because there were three races. We only watched two. The third one was the NASCAR Pepsi bottle Budweiser four tire something or other. I don't know. Okay. Around an oval. We will turn in our podcasting shops and our motor racing (laughs) geek cards the minute we start watching NASCAR. There, there was some some other race that was NASCAR. I don't know what it was. But it, that happened this weekend, too. It was supposed to be a big deal, according to Lee Diffie. But, yeah. We watched the Indy 500, which this is the first year we've watched the Indy 500. And, yes, we admit we, we watched it this year because of Fernando, and we wanted to see how he would do. Um, and before we talk about I – mean, I will say a couple of things. One, I felt very much like the – the coverage was all, where is Ferrando? Um, the whole way I was kind of surprised by that. But the other thing is, yes, we watch at IndyCar as a series. We don't embrace it like we do Formula One. We watch at it. We kind of generally try to keep up with it enough to know who these people are when we go down to enjoy Mid-Ohio, mm-hmm. where we really do enjoy our time there because it's the closest to the open wheel single seater that we can get in the states accessibly. Yeah. So all of that we watch at it, but ovals aren't really our thing and I freely admit that too. But Fernando was enough of a draw to say, "Okay, let's go watch this." That said, I would hope that there were a lot of other people like us that were interested in what happened with Fernando. Given how, and, and yeah, it's jumping ahead a little bit, given how um, the crowd reacted mm-hmm. to Fernando at the end of that race, I'm pretty sure that at the very least, the IndyCar fans were very excited by it and were happy to see him out there. Um, before we get to that, though, if if you have watched any kind of news coverage in the last 24 hours as we record this you have seen the videos of the incredible crash that scott dixon had jay howard scott dixon yeah um that that between that and and scott dixon in his car flying through the air and the engine getting ripped off and and knowing what we have seen of what it takes and, and how that engine is integrated into that car the fact that that engine came off is 
stunning in its own right. But it was also the and none of the news reports post race have covered this. But if you watch the race, you saw it, and even they talked about it. Elio Castroneves driving underneath Scott Dixon's car as it flew into the wall because it was the only place he could go to avoid this. Right. Oh, oh, that whole crash. And I got to give both ABC bonus points for the amount of coverage that they had on it. IndyCar for the amount of cameras that they have yeah. for all of the different angles because there is no part of that angle that we didn't see multiple times. Including the, the camera guy who was at the look, the impact point. Yes, who needs new was, shorts. Needs <laughs> new shorts, but he was taken off and he's fine. He was texting. I don't know how many people caught that the impact point into the, the fencing, um, which they had to repair. Yeah. Because there was a giant hole in the fence. Um, Impact point of the fencing was directly over the tunnel that took people from the outfield to the infield. It was close. I don't think it was directly over, but it was close to it. It looked like it was pretty darn close. But there would have been debris showering down on anybody that was down underneath that that point. Well, the way those fences are, and and it's the whole point of those catch fences, the way those fences and everything are designed— there may not have been because well, they're designed to catch and redirect it back onto the track. I understand that part, but I would assume that much like mid Ohio, that a little pieces, things that wouldn't hurt anybody yeah. would probably have fallen through. But the big stuff, yes, that all went back onto the track. You commented on how fast the safety car moved. We watched one angle that showed the safety cars were moving once the minute Jay Howard hit the wall, which was at the other side. Yeah. And then he crossed all the way from the top of the wall all the way down, and that's what caused Dixon to fly. And, and to be clear, it is the Homatro safety team. Yes. <laughs> and they're really nice guys. I talked yeah. to them quite a bit when they were at Mid-Ohio and got selfies with them and that kind of thing last year. Um, they're, they're pretty cool guys. And, um, you know, that was all sorts of, of fun to watch, but it's only fun because everybody walked away and it was seconds after that car landed that Scott Dixon popped up and popped out of the car, walked away under his own power. Um, apparently he's got some left ankle issue. He was in a boot later in the, in the race. You you know, I've, I've heard two different pieces. Um, I heard some talk that, that he was uh, seen in a walking boot later on. I've heard others say that he was totally fine. So I don't know what reality is on that one. Um, press coverage from our normal sources has been rather quiet over the race in general. Mm. Um, yeah, the, this incident got a lot, and it was... Spectacular. It, it was a spectacular crash. It was um, to see a car get that kind of airborne, and if it wasn't for the fact that that fence was there, that car would have ended up in the fans. Oh, yeah. Um, um, I'm sure that there are some <clears throat> fans that have some wet drawers, too, just from the, the – even with the fence there, you know the oh, fence is there. Except the fans aren't that close. Um, there, there was, I think there's some flying at you concepts. If, if you think about – um, the hill where we would watch uh, IndyCar over at that chicane there, over at, at Mid-Ohio, there is a very large buffer, probably 
40 plus feet uh, between the safety catch fence and the closest that the fans can get. So even if that car had come down, it wouldn't have ended up in the fans. Fans would have gotten dirt on them, and that that would have been about it. But there is something about seeing a giant car flying through the air coming at you Yeah, that might have caused some wet pants. Yeah. Um, no matter how close you are to it, that thing is still coming at you. It was a 3D movie in real life. I mean, come yeah. on, people. Um, but we are very happy that everybody is okay. Everybody walked away. Um, Scott Dixon's car is mush. Um, but the safety cell and the number of interviews post-race that was, you know, thanks to Delora for making a great car. Delara. That the, Delara for the the great car, the safety regulations, the fact that the safety is such that people can't lose that much of that car. There was one wheel attached and the safety cell, and that was it. Yeah. And he lost that much of his car, and he was dragged along on the top, but the cage is such that it wasn't dragged along his head. Yeah. He walked Every, away. Everybody yeah. walked away from it under their own power. No significant injuries out of it. None of it. Um, the, the biggest thing was we got some killer video. That was great video. <laughs> from a lot of angles, we got some killer video. And Helio uh, Castroneves drove underneath Elio. it. And that was amazing. Yeah. Um, that, that, cojones. <laughs> <laughs> Big ones? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Big ones? Okay. Um, but... Other things going into and coming out of the race, one of the comments I made to you going into this race was regarding Fernando's piece. There was that part of me, that that F1 fan part of me, that wanted Fernando to kick butt. I wanted him to win. I wanted him to smoke him. I wanted him to show them all that F1 drivers are the baddest asses that there are out there. As much as you dislike Fernando, right? You were you were rooting for him pretty. And the thing is, he he put on a hell of a performance out there. He did. I mean, despite the the and and yes, it's still hysterical that that Fernando Alonso was a rookie. But yeah, despite that was the little rookie number thing, was the, the rookie number, the the yellow apparently uh, rookies have yellow numbers on their car on the back of their cars and the R thing. Um, he was dicing it up there like a pro, and he was figuring out how to sucker folks in and and pop right past them and hold them on, and all of the things that an experienced oval racer could do and would do. And the commentators were talking about, you know, he dropped back right off the start, mm-hmm. which was pretty normal, getting his getting the feet underneath him, getting his going, but he was learning. Every lap he was doing something a little bit yep. better and a little bit tighter and a little bit more and took risks that other oval drivers weren't taking and was passing in places and putting things on the edge and those all things made my little F1 heart proud. Absolutely proud. But in equal measures, as much as I wanted Fernando to show IndyCar how truly awesome F1 racers are, and I was rooting for him really, really hard, in exact equal measures, I was really pushing for him to fall flat on his face, and that's because I don't like Fernando. And I get it. And I I own it, (laughs) and I understand it, and I'm sorry I will... I will just go down with going, I rooted just as hard for him to fail. Well, one of the, to, to go back to the, the fact that, that 
Fernando w- was giving this master class is one of the the things that has been attributed to the big J. Howard Scott Dixon crash was J. Howard claims that and, and yes and no, but claims that Ryan Hunter Ray pushed him high onto the turn, which took him off the racing line into the marbles, and then he lost control, and that's what, why he bought it. And several other drivers had similar situations, that they ended up going high off that racing line and into the wall because of it. Fernando, on the other hand, would end up going off the line and going high on some of these turns, or he'd go low off some of these turns, but he'd go off that line, and there'd be no drama whatsoever. No. None. No. And he would execute a pass by going off the racing line and doing those things. And it was a thing of beauty to watch. And I will eat the words that say I dislike that man as much as I will say it was fabulous to watch. And I was rooting for him. And that says a lot considering how much I don't care for him. Yeah. Because I find, and it's my feeling, it's my feeling that he's overhyped. It's my feeling that he's a little precious snowflake. And all of those things is why I don't like him. He's probably a fabulously sweet man. And he's a very good racing driver. And I don't take that away from him. It's just, he's not my favorite. But it was cool to watch. It was cool to watch that orange McLaren just lap after lap after lap. He led race in the front. Yeah, he he led twenty seven laps. He was towards the front for the vast majority of the race, um, but it all kind of came apart in lap one seventy nine. Well. Just before that, not too many laps before that, 20, 30 laps before, Ryan Hunter race, um, race came to a bitter end. Puff of smoke. Puff of smoke, a pop, and it was over. And he coasted along to the side of the, the track. It was done. His engine failed. They said in the commentary that there is no warning for that kind of failure. It just happens. And then 179... Fernando rounds a corner, there's a puff of smoke, there's popping sound. Crunchies. And it was all over. Now, the the you latched on to the Fernando's gonna be annoyed because the Honda engine failed him yet again, regardless of the series, the Honda Indians have failed him. I saw something very different when that happened, and I'm wondering if you noticed it. Okay. When the safety cars came out to pick him up, to pick his car up, to do that part. There's a set there's a protocol to the drivers don't walk like they do in right. F1. They don't tend to they walk hop in but truck they hop in a truck and get taken back to the pits. F1 they do a lot of walking. Yes, there's the walk of shame. There's the walk of shame where they get picked up on a moped or yeah. something like that. But they don't typically get in a car. I watched the guy from the orange truck point to the truck that Fernando was supposed to go into mm-hmm. and I watched Fernando's head shake his head no. <laughs> and a guy goes it was like you could do yeah. audio commentary this you don't have, you have a choice, choice. dude <laughs> you have to get in that car no that's the car you're going to go in yeah. no go there i know you i know you don't speak english as a first language go there <laughs> <laughs> but it was very funny to watch that happen like fernando was standing there going no i do a walk of shame now yeah. <laughs> but he was actually really gracious when they came out of the the pit garage, well, and I, had interviews. I was impressed by Fernando. I, I think some of it was the fact that he hopped out of that car 
and the crowd roared. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a you suck roar. No. It w- it, and, and I think that had an impact on him there. But in many ways, and I think this is why Honda was willing to do this and was so far behind it and why McLaren backed it was because I truly think that Honda felt that this was their opportunity to prove to Fernando that, yes, the F1 team sucks, but we really do know how to build an engine because the Honda engines have been competitive this year. And I think to some degree, Fernando did see that because one of the things that they talked about was that there was a performance increase. Honda had found something this year that was giving them even more power over the Chevys because there's only two engines in in IndyCar that had given them more power. But the downside was that it was impacting reliability and they were seeing more engine failures. And the question I have is, does Fernando recognize that, yes, this is a different series and a different engine, and it does work really well, uh, or does Fernando turn around and go back to the, damn it, Honda blew it again, and these guys are incompetent. So Zach Brown, what he had to say. Okay. Zach's the only one who has commented on this so far. Zach said that it's gone up in a puff of smoke, which is something we see all too often. Sad for Fernando, everyone at McLaren, everyone at Andretti. We've had a very painful couple of years, and this was hopefully intended as part of the program to give us a good result. To be let down again, as we have been, is just shocking, but not surprising. Interesting. Yeah. Now... One of the things I wanted to point out, just kind of giving you an idea of how well Fernando did in mm-hmm. the Indy 500. Only two drivers put in more lead laps than Fernando yeah. did. Um, and one was only by one. It was Ryan Hunter Ray. And for a while, you watched the two of them. He was actually doing a really great, you know, they were well, drafting it, off it, of it, each it other. It wasn't just him. He was doing it with Ryan Hunter Ray for a bit. But even earlier in the race, he was doing it with Alexander Rossi. Correct. Um, but so Rossi led for 23 laps, mm-hmm. Alonzo 27, Ryan Hunter Ray 28. Now, the driver that led the most number of laps in the Indy 500 was another prior Formula One driver, Max Chilton. He, he led for 50 laps. It didn't seem like he was up there that long. He really was. Wow. He really was. Um, most of that last bit of the, the race, he was in the number one spot. Um, he led for 50 laps of the, of the race and ended in fourth. He dropped back at the very last mm-hmm. bit, but six out of the top 10 racers, six of them were Honda engines and yeah. only four of them were Chevys, which was distinctly different than what it looked like last year when other than Rossi's win at Indianapolis, if you weren't in a Chevy, you weren't yeah. winning. And speaking of Rossi, there there are a couple of things there around him. Um, He was looking very strong at the beginning of the race. Oh, yeah. And I think it was a pit lane issue that caused him to drop as far back as he did. Otherwise, I think he would have been up there as well. (laughs) But the other thing I thought was interesting, referencing the strategy that had occurred last year that got Alexander the win, was there was a call that was made to 
several drivers on, I think it was um, A.J. Foyt's team, uh, and, and they may have heard it a couple of other times as well of, well, you know, we need to pit now and cover this just in case because we think some other drivers are about to do a Rossi. <laughs> <laughs> he has become legendary enough that his name is now a verb. Is a strategy. It's a strategy. <laughs> now, one of the key things here is, and this circles back to the beginning part of the show when we were talking about the fans, talking about refueling and things mm-hmm. like that. And this is a very key thing and probably one of the things we'll probably end the show on because I know it's been long and I hope you buckled up and I got, well, I got one other thing. Um, but refueling. Mm-hmm. When we talk about refueling, we talk in terms of Formula One being able to fill up the car and the 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 drivers go flat out and they race as hard as they can without regard to conserving fuel. The number of calls that we heard throughout the Indianapolis 500 of you got to save fuel, save fuel, save fuel, and they have refueling. Rossi winning last year on a fuel-saving run. Right. And to the point that he coasted across the finish line, his car was not running when he went across the finish line. Yeah. Because he was sputtering three laps earlier mm-hmm. um and they were talking towards the end of this year's that they were um they were clutching and doing things in the car to save fuel if you think for one minute that if you bring refueling back to formula one you aren't going to hear those kinds of calls that's not racing flat out without regard to fuel yeah that is fuel saving as a strategy and that's exactly what this becomes and so this is where I think it is most telling that the fans don't know what will accomplish what they want and so they ask for all of these things and they tend to to not ask for the things of what they really really want so the last story we have this goes back a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about um you know, all the deals that had to get put into place to get Fernando into that car. And we were wondering how the sponsors would, you know, what kind of impact this has on the sponsors. They're now in a series that they they didn't pay to be in. They pay to be on these cars. How did that work? Well, McLaren actually didn't charge any of the sponsors for that placement. Um, what Zach Brown had to say, he said, it's something we're doing as part of our larger motor racing program to deliver for our partners. It isn't anything we have charged them incrementally for. As good partners, you need to recognize when you're delivering and when you're not. And we're not delivering on track, which directly impacts their exposure. So this is a great way to offset that loss of exposure we are generating now with a tremendous amount of exposure. We felt that was the right thing to do. Commercially, it's to make sure we deliver to our partners the exposure we promised. Wow. And I lied when I said that was the last thing. It was one thing, got to wonder at this point. Fernando has already come out and said that he enjoyed the, the opportunity. He has said that he wants to do this again. And you're predicting that he will bag Formula One in a desire to go to IndyCar Next year. I, I don't know. That window is now open, and I think the, the, the silly season gets really kind of interesting because if this car continues to not perform, if this engine considers to continues to be the useless bag of bits that it is, Fernando's not going to be willing to stay at McLaren. Mm-hmm. 
Right. He's already said he doesn't want to stay if this engine isn't productive. What are the opportunities for him at that point? He's not going back to Ferrari. There's no way that's ever happening. No. Even even if they let Kimi go, there's no way they're going to take him back, and he's not going to go back. He's There's no opportunity at Red Bull. Um, it could be interesting from a personal relationship standpoint if he went to Mercedes. I'm not sure Mercedes really wants that. I don't think they do either, and I think Valtteri is doing a phenomenal job of doing what it takes to keep his seat. Yeah. And you pointed out while we were watching it that Valtteri's job this year is to keep that seat. Mm -hmm. And what he has to do is every time Lewis stumbles, pick up the pieces. Mm -hmm. So coming in fourth in Monaco is exactly that. He grabbed as many points as he could for the team. He's keeping the pieces. So... I don't see him going to win to Williams. No. Maybe Renault, but I don't know about that. I mean that that's not a team that's going to be challenging for the front for at least another two to three years. And if he goes to any other team, odds are they're not going to be willing to let him do this again. Right. They're not going to want him to skip Monaco. They might allow a WEC run, which we know he wants to do as well. So then that's the question of knowing that, knowing he wants to go back to Indianapolis, knowing that he wants to do WEC, where does Fernando go? What does he do? Does he bother to stay in Formula One, or does he turn around and decide that the door is now closed? There is no opportunity for him to be with a team that that will get him that championship and pick up and leave. Now, based on what happened this weekend, would he be open to going to a Honda team? Would he go to a Chevy team? Or does he just say he's going to pack it in and go to WEC? I don't know. I don't know what the future holds for Fernando, but I wonder if somebody's not putting a bug in his ear to make a shot at the championship for IndyCar. Not just winning the 500, Mm -hmm. but you're a two-time F1 champion. You obviously are good at this. Yeah. Join a team for a whole season and take the championship. And and that's the thing. I, I don't think that Fernando's return to Indianapolis is going to be a one-off race thing. You think I it'll think be- it, I think at this point, if he comes, he's going to go full season. But that real question becomes, is he going to be willing to throw it in with Honda, knowing what's happening, you know, having experience both this weekend and everything that's been going on at McLaren? Or would he want to go to a Chevy powered team? I don't know. And I don't know. I don't know. But it'll be interesting. It'll definitely be interesting. So on that, what do you think? Where will Fernando end up when he spins the wheel of Fernando? Which, knowing Fernando, it's just the rebadged version of Cartock's Wheel of Misfortune. Also possible. Because Fernando makes bad career choices. And definitely not the (laughs) Wheel of Morality from Animaniacs. (laughs) Wheel, 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 turn, turn, turn. On that note, you know, let us know what you think over on Facebook or over at www.theblokeandabird.com. But on that, we'll call it a very long show. 
are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay.